Zoom recording. Hello, Jack. No, I have nothing to say. Yeah, well, yeah. It sounded like I had something to say. Like, like sometimes... You did have something to say. I had something to say, and then you said, I'm pressing record, and then my <laughs> mind went blank. You know, that's what happens. <laughs> and then the Zencaster alerts. It goes, boop, boop, yeah. recording in three, two, one. <laughs> have you got anything on the soundboard this week? No, I keep meaning to do that, uh, and I, I go, I should do this. I went to download the Althusser video of him being like, you are so no an anarchist, but I was like, can I be bothered to actually do this? The answer is no. no One of these days, I no, will. I tried to find a soundbite of Murray Bookchin saying dialectical, but I couldn't find it anywhere, uh-huh. so shame. <laughs> You're going to do it. All I have is still just the same dramatic piano, <laughs> which I don't know what podcast would use that like a serial type podcast or something but that's the one thing that they have so i don't know maybe when we start talking like about like a serial like, killer podcast not like yeah, yeah maybe when we start talking about like uh you know peasants being removed from like uh their land in the enclosure as i'll do that okay it will see like it depends how eloquently and passionately we're describing the, <laughs> yeah. or um, if we need some help if we, yeah, maybe if there's a bit of dead air to fill, just like, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, dear. Put a bit of piano um, behind me, why not? I don't mind. Dan, do you care about the American elections at all? Uh, no, do, not do really. You, I mean, I was um, I was quite astounded to realize that it was the Iowa caucus last week or whenever yeah. it was. It was like Monday or like Tuesday. Like I suddenly was like, oh my god, they're talking about it, and it's tomorrow and it's now kind of thing yeah i can't quite believe that it's four years since 2020 and like we're doing it all again um but i'm not i'm not um it's like i'm going to take a passing interest yeah i suppose i suppose i mean it was quite it was like funny that ron DeSantis dropped out it is so funny oh my (laughs) god just like immediately and then like trump kind of fairly easily just won new hampshire too oh really it's like oh okay there you go it is so funny that like every four years now it's just a tradition for the republicans to just like trot themselves out and just get humiliated by like the stupidest man on the planet. <laughs> it's just like, oh my god. Yeah, do? yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't. Yeah, I just like. Um, I don't know what to think about it all, really. Yeah, I don't have any particular opinions? I mean, I guess it is all becoming a bit more scary. I haven't lived. I mean, I I haven't lived the last four years in in terror of the next Donald Trump pres- premiership. <laughs> Um, but that isn't to say that I shouldn't have done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I don't know. Not much I can do. Uh, I'll do my yes. best, I guess. It's yeah. it all sucks. Yeah, but you're not here to learn about current events, and you're not here to be told what to do. Exactly. So. Yeah, we're not good commentators on that. I don't. <laughs> I don't ever attempt to be. Like this is a sort of like broader topic. But I was having a conversation recently, and um, what I was saying was that. Like I find it very hard to identify like world historic events when they're happening, kind of thing. Like this person was expressing to me a degree of worry that they were living under with goings on in the Middle East and the sort of continued relationship between the West and Putin and whatever. And like, are we on the brink of you know the next war or like? And I was just like, I just can't. <laughs> yeah, I can't, I know, but I can't even like. I just, I just like, <laughs> I just struggle to see present events in that historical context, which is funny, really, because like that is my interest. So maybe I should try a bit harder to like. <laughs> well, you know, 
Anyway. Oh man, what are you, know. you gonna say? It sucks. It's, it's it's all bad. It's all terrible. Do your best, but I don't know. Do I do I sound like I'm recording through my microphone? You sound like you're recording okay, through your good. microphone, yeah. Okay, good. I just realized there's no way to check for me and I forgot to do it. So that's good. Uh-huh. Aren't you listening to yourself? I'm not. Uh, Maybe okay. I should be. No, that'd know. be terrible. I don't know I why. That. I don't know why. Every time I like go to edit it or like still every time I go to edit it or every time I just go to listen to it, I'm just like, that's my voice, man. Come on. <laughs> like, come on. Why you got to do me like that? Why that got to be my voice? <laughs> Yeah, someone needs to create the kind of like ai overlay that you can put over your it just like it just changes all of the voices enough that you can edit them without like without having to listen if that makes sense that would be nice yeah, yeah. i could give myself like a james earl jones voice or something i don't like know why that. it has to be ai but you know like... <laughs> yeah you just get somebody <laughs> oh yeah oh you could yeah, yeah 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 well well i mean obviously we would have the free version and so we'd get whatever voice it gives you and then like <laughs> you would have to decide whether you wanted to like pay extra for the premium well, I guess the podcast would have to decide whether it wants to pay extra for the yeah. premium version to make you sound like James Earl Jones. Um, <laughs> which, you know, we probably wouldn't, honestly. But. Yeah. Well, what are you going to do? I'm just waiting for someone to make a deep fake of us. I think that'll be very funny yeah. one day if that happens. If that technology exists <laughs> for the common person, that sounds very funny. What would they... What would they make us say that would be any more like I mean, embarrassing I feel like the or thing incriminating is, than we already <laughs> exactly. said. You know? I feel like the first 10 minutes of every podcast episode are exactly the same. Yeah. So them like trying to create an AI version of it, it'd be like, yeah, that just sounds like us. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe it's data set wouldn't be that big. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like we knowingly say some stupid things and we very cautiously <laughs> don't say some like, yeah. incriminating things, you know? Like, incriminating. <laughs> yeah incriminating things exactly not that we're up to anything that would be due you know but like true yeah other than podcasting which is uh, a yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in in which in and of itself should be a crime yeah. <laughs> you know what i had to do dan i had to a mutual friend of ours invited me to a dinner that sounded very very nice and i had to turn it down and i had to give a reason and it was because i was podcasting <laughs> <laughs> she was just like okay <laughs> <laughs> uh, need a better yeah. excuse. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and literally anything else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, anything else. Yeah. I have to go uh, return some videotapes. My apologies. Yes. I can't yes. yes. Sorry, I'm rendering services to podcasting tonight. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm contributing to the general intellect. What can't you understand? <laughs> uh yeah. well, speaking of saying incriminating things, Dan. Um, our reading this week. We have to pretend like we know what we're talking about because we read something, some stuff from Capital. Dan, can I just say we read the final section of Capital? Well done, us. Hey. We did it. We got. Hey, we got through all of Capital. <laughs> <laughs> if somebody were to just cursorily look at our podcast feed, they go, "Oh, at the beginning of their podcast tenure, they." St- read the first several chapters and now they've read the last chapters done, they must done. have read it all yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then if they look at any of the rest of our podcasting output they would see that that's what we do quite frequently exactly <laughs> yes we've read the first and last chapters of capital yeah so well i think we know us. what we're talking about thank you very much <laughs> um what was the section called it was the the so-called so-called primitive, primitive accumulation. accumulation this hmm. is some this is so fucking good like you said you said last episode you were like new year new us we're talking about value theory definitely new year new us we're going back to capital these last this last section these last few chapters on primitive accumulation 
are legitimately not just some of like my favorite stuff of Marx's, but like maybe some of my favorite writing period, because it's so creative. It's exactly what we like talking about on the show. And it's like, it's so funny too at certain points. Like, like when he starts and he's talking about Adam Smith, he's just like this dumb motherfucker. What does he know what he's talking about? Um, I love this stuff. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard for me to imagine the character of Marx when he's writing these things. It's not those kind of like barbs that he throws at other people. Um, and it's, it's not the sarcasm. It's the kind of, um, when he's sort of like more visceral moral horror at certain historical or contemporary to him circumstances sort of emerges momentarily it's kind of like i sort of imagine him trying to be not exactly an impartial writer but like a an academic writer and then either as you say there'll be some kind of like veiled attack on uh an intellectual contemporary or there would just be some moments of like oh this person was deeply invested in the um the sort of like abhorrent circumstances and the plight of sort of the the, the impoverished of the society that you lived in so. yeah i'm glad you bring that up actually because like in it 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 does show what the point of communism is right what the point of marxist thinking was and that it's like it's got this this is an annoying thing to say, but it's got this dual-sided nature where it's like on one hand, it's this very scientific, very like abstracted um, study of the world at large in an attempt to understand the like real movements of society, how things actually work and where they might be going from there, right? In a very like scientific way or whatever, right? But then like all throughout the book, there are real moments of Marx kind of beating you over the head being like, actually, this is also a moral struggle too. And like, be very aware or beware of people who try to take the moralism out of it. Uh, there's the really, really long chapter in here on the working day. And it's very annoying because it's just like Marx going through page after page after page of like um, statutes and, you know, law cases and all of these different things and the working conditions of people in Manchester and all these different things. And you're kind of just like, holy shit, this is why are we, why did he take so long to just talk about this? And it's because he wants to like concretize all of this stuff and be like, hey, actually, this affects real people and it's really fucking terrible. And that's actually why we're in it. We're not in the struggle for socialism because we have a bigger brain than everybody else. We're in it because we want to make things better because things suck right now. And this, like this final section is, as you say, like it's full of stuff like that of him being like concretizing it. And it's a really interesting way to end the first volume being like, um, wow, like the slave trade, that's pretty fucking terrible, huh? <laughs> like, this is why we're trying to change things, not just be because we're smarter than everybody else, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's a, yeah, there's, there's a particular part of this uh, section when he's, specifically he's talking about something we've come across before. He's talking about the use of child labor in the water-powered um, mills of, particularly Lancashire, but other of the northern counties where uh, mill owners would um, take orphan children from the slums of London or wherever and, and employ them as, in quote-unquote, apprentices. Um, and he goes through, like, this sort of several pages of, like, uh, qu quoting contemporaries talking about the sort of the horror of these practices and um, the... What stood out to me in particular was the kind of like 
24 hour work pattern and making children like sleep during the day and work, work through the night um and the idea that like the beds in the accommodation never went cold because there was some somebody was warming it at all parts of the day um but in some ways marx's moral horror at this point comes in when he's talking about the way that people who perpetuated the system did it thinking that they were virtuous kind of thing and sort of like like the whole of sort of like early victorian society or early um 19th century society had just totally lost its moral compasses this seems to be the way that he's describing it but anyway yeah well yeah i mean that's a really good point because it's like marx in a lot of his different writings makes pains to be like when you confront your boss you're not confronting your boss you're confronting capital like and your boss is just this like medium through which capital accumulates and it's like it's it's the thing about how capitalism is like this first mode we're able to have plausible deniability no matter who you are right like soldiers are able to have some kind i mean that's maybe the worst example soldiers have some kind of plausible deniability because they're just following orders the you know mcnamara when we talked about him he's like well, i'm just crunching the numbers i'm just you know i'm just the math guy the statistics guy your boss is like well if i don't do it somebody else would like you know it is this whole thing of like your boss sucks yeah but like it isn't a matter of just getting a new boss. Like you're confronting capital. This is the things you're confronting. People are made to do horrible things because they have this deniability because in realistic, like realistically, like, you know, something else is acting through them. So mm-hmm. it's mystical. Yes. Yes. It's morally virtuous for us to put all land to use. And it's, it's, um, it's, morally bankrupt of those people who don't improve land therefore we're going to have to yeah. expropriate and kill all of the yeah. indigenous population of north america to you know yeah and when we say improve we mean making money that's all yeah. we mean. exchange <laughs> value <laughs> what are you gonna do okay so i mean um this gets us in to mark's talking about um the transition debate which is like mm-hmm. Wow, I was just saying to you right before we recorded this, why didn't we just read this as like our first ever reading? <laughs> this is how capital should begin, honestly. Like maybe these chapters should have gone first. I feel like it would have de-alienated a lot of people. They would have stopped reading several chapters later as opposed to like immediately where it starts <laughs> with talking about the commodities. But um, Marx is basically like, I've got this written down because I wanted to get this right. In the beginning, he's like, you know, he's kind of like, why are we talking about primitive accumulation? right now right like this is a book on political economy why are we having this massive history lesson and he's like well in previous chapters you know we've talked about how money becomes capital and how through capital surplus value is created and how more surplus value creates more capital and he's like but if you actually pick that apart then you're kind of just stuck in this loop of trying to figure out where capitalism came from because he's like capital accumulation presupposes surplus value which presupposes capitalistic production in the first place which presupposes presupposes the existence of a massive capital and a massive labor power right so he's like you get stuck in the circle of loop where at some point there had to have been a time where this kind of primitive accumulation happened where some group of people somewhere got their hands on a massive capital and a massive labor power and somewhere along the line the social relations changed so that you know people the owners of money and commodities confronted the owners of nothing except their labor power in the marketplace and he's like actually if we really want to understand capitalism and the way that capital works you need to kind of pinpoint down when that happens um and 
the thing that I think is so good about this is that he really puts the emphasis on primitive accumulation as a process of accumulating social social relations and not of the kind of quantitative aspect of just like people made a lot of money right so i think that this is something that dan we've talked about in the show a lot before um but to see it elucidated here in like maybe its clearest fashion and in maybe the shortest reading that we've done about it was really impressive Mm -hmm. yeah he says something really um there's a short there's a short sentence that my, you know, I found really thrilling because it says what we're saying here very concisely, where he's talking about the the nature of the sort of so-called capitalist revolution, right? And he says that um, there was a capitalist revolution, um, but the capitalist didn't create the circumstances that allowed for the capitalist revolution, um, so-called, to come about. By which I'm, and I say that in this context because. What's important to remember is that although there was this initial accumulation of wealth by those people that would go on to uh, become the capitalist class, that accumulation of wealth wasn't in the first instance an accumulation of capital, right? Like we're talking about a process that happens before capitalism, something that's internal to the feudal social relations itself or at least internal to the historical development well internal to the development of history a historical development that just so happens to be taking place under conditions of feudal um the feudal mode of production and which is a process internal to feudalism but then succeed sort of succeeds in resulting in its transformation and its um supercision at the same time um the point i guess i'm making is that like out of the contradictions of feudalism are created the conditions that allow capitalism to happen it's not that um a class of capitalists decides we're gonna we want to institute capitalism and therefore we need to accumulate um a sufficiently large portion of the pre-existing feudal social wealth that will allow us to create capitalist relations yeah, I mean, you and I are always constantly trying to be like, we want to know the specific farm. We want yes. to know the specific date that capitalism <laughs> Tell started. <us> and, when. <laughs> and it's funny because you're absolute, like, you're absolutely right to point to this kind of sporadic nature of the formation of capitalistic production. Because if you go looking in these sections for a specific date and a specific place that capitalism arose, you're not going to find it because Marx is like, hey, you know, capitalistic production was around as early as the 15th, 16th century in certain, you know, parts of the Mediterranean. And then he blames a very large portion of it on Flemish uh, wool merchants. And then he eventually comes down to being like, yeah, but also like England, like, thanks a lot, England. This is where it really gets going. Mm -hmm. And all of that's just to kind of hammer home the point you're making, which is that like, you can't on one hand say, okay, well, historical materialism, the kind of like movement of these phases of history and modes of production comes about um, by way of the contradictions of the previous mode of production. And then on the other hand, say, oh, but there's a specific time that it happened. Because to understand all this stuff, you have to understand that it is the movements going back to the beginning of human society that led to the moment that it's at now, right? It's like, there's no specific phase of feudalism that you can point to and go, okay, now it's beginning. Now they're beginning a transition. Because as you say, like before you even get people dispossessed of their, um, 
own means of production and becoming just like proles, basically, right? There's a whole bunch of other things that actually have to happen before that, including what we'll get to about like, you know, pressures from the crown and like these Flemish wool merchant bastards. Um, but it is, yeah, it's all a process. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about or trying to reckon with whilst reading this or whilst reconsidering it today was this idea of primitive accumulation so-called what is it that he's trying to get at uh, and i'd be interested to know whether you have any thoughts on this um one of the things that i felt like he was trying to point out um was to sort of draw some kind of distinction similar to what you were just saying about there and things that we've said in the past about there being both a moment of transformation and a degree of continuity like uh if you take the the right reading of of this historical process if you if you plot out the right moments you can create a continuity um or if you identify certain moments you can see the material transformation of the social relations that result in the sort of like the schism between modes of production um and one of the things i felt like he was trying to poke at with this idea of so-called um primitive accumulation is that like it's something that somehow has to precede capitalism going back to what you were saying before capitalism is this kind of like virtuous cycle of which there is no beginning and so this process of a primitive accumulation the question he's trying to answer is what comes before the process of capitalist accumulation he describes the process of the employing of wage labor by capitalists, the mixing of wage labor with um, privately owned means of production to create um, surplus value in the form of wealth unpaid to the workers. That is the process of capitalist accumulation. What kind of accumulation has to happen to allow that form of accumulation to come into existence? Um, And I feel like the idea of primitive accumulation is that it's sort of like it's primitive too, and it comes before capitalism, but also it's sort of so-called in the sense that it can't be directly distinguished from it at the same time. It kind of has to be recognized as a continuity. Um, so that's just really just to reiterate what you were just saying. But I think one of the things that he really does a really good job of in, um, in sections of this chapter is um, pointing out those historical moments in feudalism that are... Um, processes of the dynamism of the feudal mode of production and it's it's the sort of like the historical churn that happens at any point in time um but that are important to what will become the unraveling of feudalism and the beginning of capitalism at the same time um one of the really interesting things he says when he's trying to date um the beginning of capitalism he sort of settles on the 16th century but as you were saying, like there are hallmarks of it that you can point to in the 14th and 15th century. So what what is it? Is it that it exists earlier than that or it only exists when it's in its sort of like complete form? Um, what he points to as being really necessary is certain key constituents of feudalism have to be on the wane before you can even meaningfully talk about capitalism coming about. So um, he says by the 16th century, you don't necessarily have capitalism come about, but what you do have is the complete disappearance or the near disappearance of feudalism, of serfdom rather, um, in England, which it seems like he's saying would be 
a significant impediment to capitalism. Um, and he also talks about the sort of like independent feudal town as being something that's also on the wane at this point. Um, presumably because um, if you have sort of like strong towns in feudalism, they sort of like exist as this independent bulwark against um, the feudal aristocracies to some degree, but also what they do is protect a certain type of um, small-scale feudal production of like small-scale consumer goods by artisans kind of thing. And you sort of have to have the conditions that protect the town and the residents of the town be declining before you can have the beginnings of an internal um, countrywide market, I suppose. Yeah, part of uh, part of yeah. all that kind of like makes me a bit sympathetic to like maybe a more world systems theory approach. And insofar as I actually understand it, because I'm not entirely certain that I do, but like like maybe people who will come out and say like, well, capitalism is the only real mode of production because it's the only global one, because it's the only one that is a world system and that has rules that you can point to that are constant, right? And I wouldn't go that far, but I do think that like, I don't know. When you are trying to point to like a very beginning, it's like it is kind of an interconnectedness of these different places and, of you know, the kind of like world system at large. Anyway, the only other thing I'll say on that is that like um, I think I think the so-called primitive accumulation stuff, I hadn't thought about it in the way that you were saying. I had kind of just assumed it was him doing the subtext subtitle of the book, Critique of Political Economy. Because at the very beginning, he just comes out and is like, everybody thinks a primitive accumulation is this. Here's why it isn't that. Here's what it actually is. So like so-called primitive accumulation. Um, <clears throat> that phrase, I suppose, was like maybe, um, I don't know who used it first, but like he's criticizing Adam Smith because Adam Smith's view of primitive accumulation in the beginning of capitalism is very much a like, you know, some people just pick themselves up by their bootstraps and decided to be gung-ho like farmers. And, you know, they decided to have the Protestant work ethic baby and just go out and they decided to make money for the sake of it. And Marx is like, well, that completely confuses what capital actually is. Capital isn't just money. And so he's like, you do have to figure out where these unique social relations of capitalism came from. And um, yeah. What's and yeah, go ahead. I mean, it's what you were saying before about the difference between it's his way of critiquing the qualitative, qualitative and the quantitative, right? Like Adam Smith is talking about a quantitative increase in uh, private wealth, I suppose, and Marx is talking about a um, qualitative change in social relations. I guess. Yeah, but it's like you can't even. I think also what he's saying to Smith is that like you don't even get close to understanding what primitive accumulation actually is. If you are just talking about the quantitative kind of, as you're saying, because like money doesn't just become capital overnight. Money isn't capital. Commodities aren't just capital. Owning means of production isn't necessarily just capital, right? It's this process. It's the social relation. Um, and, you know, that kind of leads Marx to be like primitive accumulation must be the separation of laborers from their own means of production. Right. And he has one of his fame. A lot of Marx's more famous quotes are in this section. He has the quote here where he says, these new freedmen became sellers of themselves only after they have been robbed of all of their means of production and of all of the guarantees of existence afforded to them by the old feudal arrangements. And the history of this, their expropriation is written in the annals of mankind in the letters of blood and fire, which is like, ah, oh, dun, 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 dun. One of the like gnarly Marx quotes. Um, and then I think, and maybe we can kind of move on to this, like Marx then goes on 
well, maybe it's a bit early, but Marx then goes on to start talking about like how violent this process was. And instead of this like glorious thing of, you know, the birth of the entrepreneur and of like hustle culture mindset, these people getting up early and like becoming, you know, people who become capitalists, the bourgeoisie, right? Like instead of becoming a really cool thing that you admire, he's like primitive accumulation was this incredibly violent process. It was bought about by force, not just in the kind of birth of capitalism and, you know, in, I'll just say Europe just to be broad, but also as it kind of everything else that it touched and kind of like obviously in the slave trade and in the conquest of the Americas, he's like, it's the most violent thing that has ever happened. And he's like, and probably will ever happen. So, yeah. Yeah, it's difficult. There's a, it's, um, for me, it's still quite difficult to pass out the various historical stages here, right? Because you're right, there is a later stage, which um, Marx explicates very well, where there kind of is a capitalist class, they know what they intend to do, the new social relations of capitalism are evident. Um, there is a concerted desire to both um, expropriate more land and what what would have been private means of production but then also to deliberately generate a class of um a, a new proletarian class um which can then be subjected to a process of disciplining which is sort of done um somewhat knowingly i think uh, in the way that he describes it um but then there's this sort of like murky middle ground period in the kind of like Tudor era where um, there seems to be this sort of degree of back and forth where there are these drivers which are starting to create some of the conditions that we recognize as being um, primitive accumulation in England, by which I mean the first sort of processes of enclosure. Um, and some of the things which drive toward that, like he um, he indicates, he talks um, specifically about um, I, can't, I can't remember which which king it is. One of the Jameses who kind of like abolishes a whole class of um, sort of barons from the noble structure of uh, feudal England. Um, I infer that from that there is this. Um, by doing that you also eradicate a sort of like um a feudal connection between like all of these degrees of um aristocracy needing to own a certain quantity of land and a certain number of serfs to serfs to represent or peasants to represent their sort of social wealth kind of thing so you're, you're sort of like if you degree if you destroy a section of the ruling class of um feudalism you also sort of break a social bond that they have with um, a degree of the sort of peasant working class of feudal England at the same time. He also sort of talks about um, uh, a increase in wood prices that happens, which also functions as a, as a um, economic driver to encourage um, the aristocracy. Wool. Sorry, wool, is it wool? Right? It's yeah, not wool. wood. It's wool. <laughs> to um, that's just my dyslexia misreading something and <laughs> running away with it, <laughs> which does make a lot more sense because the pri the primary driver that we imagine as being behind the process of enclosure, um, particularly in like the Scottish Highlands and that kind of thing, is 
the requirement to drive off tenant farmers and replace them with um, uh, sheep farming, which can be done for a profit to deliberately exploit high European-wide prices for wool kind of thing. Yeah. Well, let's, I, I think we should get into that because I think that Mark splits it up. He kind of splits it up in three ways where he's like, here's the genesis of the working class. Here's the genesis of the agricultural bourgeoisie. Here's the genesis of the industrial bourgeoisie. Mm-hmm. So I think first we should do what he does. And I think maybe talk about the genesis of the working class. Um, he, he basically says that throughout feudalism going into this later stage, like there was this constant drive towards creating like different sub feudalism feudalatories i don't really know the correct word where it was like constantly parcelizing not just sovereignty but like control of lands and this person has this person who reports to them who has this person who reports to them it was a very similar thing that we kind of saw when we talked about japan where it was like there was just these long drawn out chains of people who owed fealty to who and some people that were working lands that owed fealty to other people and who kind of rented their own means of production but still had wage laborers because they kind of had big farms they couldn't run it all by themselves um but he says that like eventually there this starts to dissolve. And he says this is basically the big drive towards the creation of a working class. So he says there's like this dissolution of retainers and the kind of massive structure of parcelized everything, right? And he says that there are two causes for this. One of them, and I'm wondering if you kind of have any thoughts on this. We'll take them one at a time. But like he says the first cause is the kind of absolutizing pressure from the central monarch in England, whereas, you know, you kind of think about this, this is when you start to get the like big famous, you know, monarchs who would throw their weight around, whether that's um, the fat guy, what's his name? Henry VIII, Henry VIII. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, the Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth. There's only one. The second one just died. Anyway, this is like when you start to see a real absolutizing pressure from the crown where they're really trying to directly control things. A push towards absolutism, which like I don't know a whole lot about. I mean, I think that when we're taught about it at, in school in America, it's like Henry VIII, he just wanted to, you know, divorce his wife. What a crazy guy. That's why he did all of these things. But it's like, well, actually, this was one of the like driving forces behind the creation of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that, Ben? Well, only to the extent that what it does is here in Marx, we seem to have some vindication of the idea that absolutism was necessary as a sort of stepping stone toward capitalism, right? And it makes sense. You're, um, it's definitely a process by which um, significant um, aspects of the social relations of feudalism are destroyed. Um, I feel like it sort of, it, it, it um, yeah, as you say, it sort of like dissolves that um, parcelized sovereignty in the form of like, um, the sort of broader aristocratic strata, but also it um, it allows for larger and larger accumulations of land to exist under like a, it sort of like truncates the ruling class and at the same time um, expands or creates new um, living circumstances for the old peasantry in the sense that um, they're, there are there are economic pressures which lead to them being um, dispossessed of their sort of peasant small holdings. Um, I guess one of the counterforces to that is a is a um, a very conscious concern that seems to be expressed by a whole series of 
English monarchs and um, sections of the ruling class and something which is deliberately reflected in um, legislation at the time, which is designed in some ways to protect the sort of existence of the peasant smallholding. There's laws that are intended to ensure that um, all peasant houses come with a certain plot of land which allow them allow the continuation of a certain degree of autonomy um, there are rules set against peasants being allowed to rent rooms out to like itinerant wage workers um, so there's definitely a sort of like a moral ambiguity that's going on around whether the transformations that are being seen in the Society of England during this period are something which want to be condoned or pushed back against or um, that was really interesting to me this kind of like degree of concern that was also expressed toward these things that were happening. Yeah, the whole section of that one chapter where Marx is just going through the different laws that were put in yes. place to just like <laughs> kick the shit out of people that were like no longer peasants. It's so gnarly. It's just like, oh my God. Um, but yeah. And so then the second thing that he says was a push towards the dissolution of this kind of feudal structure was the Flemish wool trade. Now, I didn't know anything about this so-called Flemish wool trade. So I did a, the smallest amount of extra research that I possibly could because I was like, is Marx really going to just casually drop that there might be another location for the origin of capitalism on me and just leave it at that? Because it is kind of a small section that he talks about this, but it is really important. And I guess the a bit of background is just that during this time, and actually kind of in the 1600s, he basically says that Holland at this point was like the leading capitalist nation, which I thought was really interesting. But he basically says, or to give a bit of background on the Flemish wool trade, like around this time, there was a kind of growing scale of wool manufacturing in Holland. And it wasn't just small craftsmen. It was like actual what we would recognize as like wool factories wool factories textile factories were coming about it's funny how when we talk about the origin of capitalism a lot of textiles always come up hmm. um but i suppose this i was kind of interested in why this happened there and not anywhere else and i suppose there are a couple of different reasons i looked it up and it was like there had always been a long tradition of craftsmanship in the abbeys and this kind of area of holland was just like replete with abbeys right um there was very high population density and that kind of forced the residents who lived there to supplement their own incomes with things that weren't agriculture because they had to because there were just too many people living there. And finally, it was just very suitable for sheep. But at a certain point, there began to be a need for more wool than could be you know, raised in um, kind of that area of continental Europe, right? And so this again, like as you're saying, Dan, like led to a rise in the price of wool and it led to this kind of like what Marx calls like the new nobility in England showing up that were just motivated by money, right? Like they wanted money kind of in the century immediately before this, there had been large scale wars of the kind of like barren, you know, the kind of like old barons and stuff like this. And they'd kind of decimated each other. So this new nobility was able to rise and this new nobility only really cared about money. And this is kind of where we start to talk about the origin of a, um, of a capitalist class as well, at least in agriculture. Um, and this is basically what led to this new agricultural capitalist class realizing, hey, there's kind of all this land out there that 
it's they call it the commons, but it doesn't actually technically really own to one belong to one person. So we can kind of just take it over, fence it off and just, you know, cut all the trees down and just turn it into basically like pasture land for our sheep and for our cattle. Um, and that is exactly what they do. And so there starts to be this large drive to um, not just kick people off of their land, but to basically turn arable land into pasture land, um, which leads to just like so many different crises. And Marx goes through and just talks explicitly about like how violent this was for the average person and how this was like recognized by most people. Like you just see like hordes of completely like decimated families just like wandering around the English countryside because there's literally no way for them to get the means of consumption or to just raise their own food. Um, And it's funny because this is just not something you ever really learn about a whole lot in history classes. I guess it's because this bourgeois interpretation of primitive accumulation is this good thing but marx here not is not just making the point that it was incredibly violent and that force was used in all aspects of this but he's making the point also that there was no transition to capitalism for the working class because you woke up one day and you were a parole and that was it it wasn't like a general like long durée thing that happened for most people it was just like boom you're a worker now sorry and it seems like, for the most part, the ruling class of England had no idea what to do with you. Like, this is coming back to what you were saying before about um, the nature of the punishments that um, Marx described as being meted out to, um, like, vagrants and um, basically anybody who wasn't, like, um, somehow gamefully employed or living, like, either a peasant on a plot of land that they owned or like employed somehow by somebody else. Um, And the only way out of suffering these sort of punishments, which eventually included death, but various degrees of maiming along the way. That was funny where it was like, if you were caught being a vagrant once, we'll just whip you. If it's twice, we'll whip you hard. And then if you're vagrant again, we'll kick the shit out of you until you die. The original three strikes. Um. But the only way out of this is to get somebody to agree to take you on as effective, some existing somewhere between um, a servant and a slave or like an apprentice and a slave kind of thing. And it was seemed perfectly acceptable for be, these people to be kept in chains by whomever it was that decided to save them from the worst of the um, uh, capital punishments or corporal punishments that were meted out. Um but what this indicates to me is that like we're still in this strange transition period where um there are economic pressures that are creating these circumstances and clearly there is a desire um on the part of a certain section of the ruling class of England to dispossess these people but we're still to sort of like and to move into the capitalist social relations proper whereby the aim is to actually exploit the labors of these 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 newly proletarianized or propertyless members of society this new class i guess yeah well there just wasn't enough work too yeah for people um because again like arable land requires more work is more labor intensive than just raising cattle or raising sheep which is another reason that this new nobility was like why don't we why aren't we just doing this you know what i mean um I think another aspect of all of this too, and the kind of like, now we're talking about like the genesis of this new nobility that eventually would become an agricultural capitalist class. 
is just like another material reason for this is like there. And I think we came across this actually in the Elamisons wood, maybe, but there were very long contracts for land rents back then. Right. Like to the point of like, these would be renewed and the price would be reconsidered every 99 years or something like that. Right. And so this was at a time when, um, there was like a pretty massive fall in the price of money or in, yeah, in the price of money and the cost of money, because there was a massive devaluation going on in terms of the actual worth of any given coin, what, you know, the gold or whatever precious metals would have been in these coins. So money was, was worth a lot less, but at the same time, rents for lands weren't changing at all. So if you're able to just speculate on a bunch of land and just gobble it all up, you'd just be laughing. You'd be printing money because at the same time, wages were going down, rents were going down, but wool prices and commodity prices were going up, right? So there was this massive need for textiles in continental Europe. There was a large need, a growing need for meat. Um, don't actually, I wonder, this just makes me think, I wonder if people's diets changed around then because presumably quite a bit less grain was being grown um, or just different varieties of crops. And I mean, if all that's being grown is like you're raising cattle, presumably it would actually, but that's not something I really know about. I mean, I think there is a section in this where he also talks about the um, like new methods of agriculture that are potentially more productive and less labor intensive. Um, so maybe there are other there are other sort of counter processes that are happening at the same time in in farming and the way that um, food is being produced. I guess they discovered no till. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, like Gerard Wynn Stanley was an idiot digging all of that soil. <laughs> Um, so do you remember from the Elimixes Woods one of those one of those things about um, uh, the nature of the development of Holland at this time was the nature of the sort of arbitrage trade that happened. Like they were um, they were importing a lot of food, which allowed for them not to necessarily have to grow as much food in Holland. So then they could put it over to sheep. Is that? That sounds about right. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Well, I mean, what's what's just what's just generally interesting about this is f- from the off, um, these dynamics are at least intercontinental. You know, there's like a, a broader, there are broader market forces, relationships of trade that are happening that are driving these dynamic shifts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one of the most fascinating things about this is Marx just casually drops. Oh, yeah, and capitalistic production was going on in the Mediterranean in like the 1300s and 1400s. Oh, yeah, the leading capitalist nation in the 1600s was Holland. It's like Marx. You keep, like wars have been fought on the left over this. Like, what are you doing? You can't just casually say that. <laughs> it is fun. I mean, it, like, it makes perfect sense, right? It How all of these various sort of like academic left-wing tendencies can come about dedicated to one particular description of how capitalism came about how feudalism became capitalism and they all just sort of like peg themselves to different lines and sections of Marx. um yeah yeah I mean, exactly i mean there's like everything's in here right there's like there's the focus on england there's the focus on mercantilism there's the focus on um the as we were saying before the sort of development of absolutism there's the focus on the discovery of the new world and the sort of like um the influx of wealth there that then created sort of dutch banking and how that invested in english production and this kind of stuff and the other so um 
yeah, pick your favorite um, favorite theory. They're all here. Kind of yeah, it is like the perfect example of just taking Marx out of context. Marx <laughs> said it. It Venice was where capitalism started. <laughs> Look, he says it here. Um. Uh, what other things do we want to talk about? I have two two other things I want to talk about. Is there anywhere you want to go from this? Um. Uh, well, I suppose only. I mean, there are there are various interesting things that come next, right? There's um, somewhat intentional destruction of small scale home production of consumer goods. I guess I mean like clothes and um, everything else that was necessary for the maintenance of a peasant home, um, and the sort of like moving of the production of those kind of goods, creating an internal market which sort of then accelerates this movement toward capitalism. Um, but we're sort of moving on there to like the, the some, somewhat intentional um, disciplining of the working class. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Where did you want I to mean, go? Yeah. I mean, I think that's an important part. Yeah. Like the stuff where he starts talking about flax is really interesting because at first you're kind of just like, okay, is this just going to be one of the points where he just starts splurging out statistics and I kind of don't really care. He's just trying to like prop it up with data. But when he starts talking about flax, it's pretty good because he makes this whole point where he's like, you know, everybody made their own flax back in the day. Like peasants would just produce their own flax for their flax related needs. And it was fine. It was flax. Right. And then he basically says that when, big capitalist manufacturing firms producing flax in a big scale you know exploiting surplus value all of this different stuff like he says that the flax itself doesn't change at all the flax is still just flax you know and it's the exact same as it was when it was being made by the petty producers producing it for themselves but he says and this is another reason i think maybe this book should just start with this stuff because it's a good introduction to his value theory stuff he says that now it has this new social soul is the phrase that he uses as soon as the flax starts being produced by under the roof of one schmuck who owns the means of production and is producing capital or is, you know owns all of this capital you know owns this money owns these commodities owns the means of production and they meet the people who are working for them who literally have been kicked out of their houses to produce the exact same thing as they were producing, but now they're just, you know, they don't kind of keep it. Now that they're meeting someone who is selling nothing but their own labor power, that's when this commodity gets its new social soul. And it's almost like an easier explanation for the commodity than than you get in his first section on the commodity. And it's kind of in a roundabout way, and it's exactly what you're saying. It's like, the commodity was still the same, the, th- the product was still the same, the flax was the flax, but now it's just completely different because of this hidden essence. Um, Yeah, and that's good, not just from a historical perspective. And the only other thing I'll say on that is that, like, we came across this exact same process in one of the readings we did on American history because this is exactly what happened kind of in the genesis of the American industrial capitalist where, um, you know, for a long time after America was settled, there were just kind of peasants who had their own land and were producing a lot of their own stuff for themselves. But... um, once industrial capital really got going in the northeast of the United States, then these people basically had to stop and become wage laborers, even though all of the same things were getting produced, right? It's like, okay, now you're just a wage laborer, right? Um, so it, it, the only reason I bring that up is to just say, like, you have to view all of this stuff as a process, and it's difficult to point to one exact time and one exact farm, I guess, 
to say where capitalism started. I guess we can. But do we that. still want it. We still want it. I'm going to find that for him. Let's just imagine that it exists. You know? <laughs> yeah. Let's, we'll just do some kind of. We'll just do some kind of thought experiment. First principles, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll yes. go and dig the soil. Um, but yeah, that stuff is all very good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. The only other thing I, I just wanted to bring up was to just to ask if you got anything, because Marx never wrote about the state, right? Did you ever get, did you get anything in this reading about his discussion on the state? I mean, I know this was one of the things we were talking about before we started recording that we maybe didn't give our best attention to, mm-hmm. but um, it was still quite good when the state popped up every now and then in these chapters. I mean, there's loads of different um, aspects in which the state is apparent in this. Like um, one of the things that I don't really understand very well um but do want to highlight at least as existing in this chapter is um, a very strong focus on the relationship between um, sort of like external investment and external investment, the proceeds, what I take to be the proceeds of um, new world imperialism representing a massive appropriation of like, sort of like a non almost non-capitalist appropriation of social wealth which is then invested into um, parts of Europe invested into England um which is taken on by the British state in the form of um national debt and it's really interesting that like there's this very com- very like somewhat detailed discussion of natural um the national debt and the formation of um uh, national a sort of state bank, the formation of the Bank of England and the function that it fulfills in um, loaning to capitalism and providing initial startup capital. The he he highlights very clearly. This is the thing that um that I was trying to explain before we started recording about the relationship between some of the things I take as being the central tenets of MMT and some of the things that Marx talks about here. Like there is a section in this where he talks very clearly about um national debt representing sort of like something akin to a social surplus in the way that the MMT economists might talk about it, you know, like there is a requirement for the state to take on debt in order for it to then be able to be um, reformulated as wealth that exists in society and therefore a form of wealth which can then... um, be put into this new process of capitalist accumulation. Um, what also comes along with that, and which is quite important to the development of capitalism, is then a requirement to pay back that debt, obviously, um, and therefore a requirement to tax the citizenry of the country. Um, it, that means that then um, the citizens of the country become invested in a money economy which sort of further inculcates them into um, the capitalist mode of production. Um, So there is that sort of like uh, state financial arm aspect of what Marx is talking about. Then, of course, there's just the degree to which um, all sorts of different types of royal and parliamentary legislation all throughout these, um, these sections are clearly quite consciously minded toward facilitating the the onward advance of this capitalist revolution that's taking place. Um, the one that stands out to me in particular is um, 
a sort of almost centuries long law. If the, there's, there's several laws in this which Marx talks about as being like recreated um, constantly. They write a new act and it sort of like uh, reaffirms the tenets of something that's come before. Um, one of them was one we were talking about in earlier centuries, the sort of the protection of the peasantry and the punishment of um, vagrancy. But there's another instance where they're talking about, or Marx is talking about um, a state mandated maximum wage. Like there's a degree to which the state here intervenes in a way which is almost anathema to modern capitalism, the idea that um, there would be a free market in wages and people can be paid whatever they what or people will be paid for the value of their labor in some degree set by market forces well what you get even in the earliest centuries of capitalism is a very conscious intervention by the state in a particular aspect of the capitalist market i.e the labor market here to um to protect the new bourgeois class i suppose um and to punish both any members of the capitalist class who pay higher wages than the state mandated maximum but also to punish anybody that accepts wages um, above that level as well so there's very definitely um uh, a degree of state intervention here it's not like some kind of um uh hypothetical form of capitalism that exists sort of like in the libertarian imaginary free of um state intervention um that's something that's always existed under capitalism as at least yeah that's what, what communism is yeah <laughs> oh yeah of course yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah, James Stewart, you know. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's funny. He's He basically says, you're absolutely right. He says that the state is put in place here. It's deployed, he says, to shorten the transition as much as possible, right? Mm-hmm. And that's absolutely true. And I mean, all you got to do is look at, uh, I don't know, like the, obviously the penal codes, the national debt, like what you're talking about, taxation, protectionism, the opening up of the colonies, like all of this stuff directly serves the accumulation of capital and shortens this transition as much as possible. There's the quote, you know, talk about taking Marx out of context. I'm sure this quote's never been taken out of context where Marx says this was such a violent process that, you know, force was used in every aspect because force is the midwife of every society pregnant with the old, right? Um, did I get that right? Did I get that? Yeah, you know what I mean if I didn't get it right. Um, yeah. And so it's just interesting to see that, like, the state was relied on heavily, basically, for all of this, exactly mm-hmm. is what you're saying. Um, yeah, that reminded me a lot of the Walter Rodney, honestly, because he basically says that there were, you know, when he starts talking about the colonies, there at the end, he's like, you know, obviously this ripened trade, it ripened this idea of national debt, it moved forward, navigation, technologies, all of this different stuff. And what he kind of fails to talk about here, which is what Walter Rodney talks about, is, you know, how that was in direct uh, uh, dialectical uh, entanglement with the um, proportion to which, you know, the colonies like the African continent and um, the Americas were directly underdeveloped. But he gets the point across. And as far as he says, this was an incredibly violent, forced process. Um only other thing I, I wanted to mention is um, so he talks he talks a lot about how the origin of the um, agricultural capitalist class was this very long drawn out process and then he talks about whereas actually the origin of the industrial capitalist 
was quite quick and quite sudden. And as far as I'm understanding, like the reason that he gives for this is because during medieval times, like there were two types of money capital. One of them was usurer's capital and the other one was merchant's capital. And he says that this money was always um, kind of stopped from being created into actual capitalist capital because it wasn't allowed to be reinvested into the towns and cities because of different guild organizations and just different feudal organizations that existed in these towns that wanted to stop these people from just taking over because they had all of this money. Um, and I thought if that's true, that really is reminiscent of that was like the reason that we saw that Japan didn't become capitalist, right? In the reading that we did, however many episodes ago that was, right? Like one of the main reasons Japan didn't become capitalist, there were a number of reasons, I suppose. But one of the main ones was because the merchant class, that the burgeoning merchant class was just like utterly suppressed by the shogunate class, by the kind of nobility, if you want to call them that. Um, and I thought that was interesting. I was like, wait a minute, that happened in Europe? But we have capitalism. I was like, hold on. But Marx's whole point is just to say that once these barriers, these feudal barriers were destroyed with this kind of destruction of the parcelized everything, of the kind of sub-feudalisms, that existed all over the place. Um, this money was just released and the industrial capitalist was born. So it's an interesting idea. Mm -hmm. One of the, um, the section of this I wanted to highlight as being particularly enjoyable where um, the kind of like, um, there's a distinctly like political section and a sort of like um, where Marx is almost polemicizing for a historical process that leads to socialism. Um, and there's a really fun kind of like, uh, historical example of what Marx talks about or intends to say when he talks about the negation of the negation. Um, and he he talks about this sort of like historical process whereby um, obviously the working class was dispossessed of their private property. They, they were um, uh, forced off their land. They were... Um, denied any means of existence that doesn't stem from selling their labor for a wage um and obviously he is sort of like both opposed to that historical process but then um doesn't intend to go back to that step um so he talks about capitalism as having like negated that form of mode of property ownership i guess um but then he talks quite nicely about the negation of that negation not being a return to small-scale personal property ownership um in the form of sort of like peasant ownership of land or what have you or in this sort of form of like a prudonist everybody's going to be a petty bourgeois like manufacturer working in their own small shop kind of thing but rather the, the negation of that that negation has to be the um a return to like a, a re-enfranchisement of um or a re i guess a re-endowing of the proletariat with means of production not in the form of personal means of production but in the form of a stake in a socially controlled and owned um, 
socialization of the means of production kind of thing um and i quite enjoyed having that sort of like uh, historical trajectory laid out in the last basically the last few pages of capital kind of thing yeah i know and it's good because he is just saying it's also impossible for everybody to go back to becoming a, yeah. you know their own little petty bourgeois producer not petty bourgeois but just like self-producing their own flax or whatever like you know He's like the big contradiction in capitalism is that it's bought together all of these, all of the means of production and everything and socialized production in such a way that it's indirect, you know, contradiction to private ownership of these means of production. And that is also, I guess, like his crisis theory, right? Is that yeah. like, this is where socialism is going to come from. Yeah. Yeah. If you're looking for the place where Marx says, um, here is a key contradiction of capitalism, the creation of a organized the creation of an organized working class that self-associates and and sees affinity with other members and also the creation of a um means of production and a form of economy which is global and interconnected and hyper productive um here are the two things that capitalism produces um and these are things which socialism is going to appropriate and they are tendencies of capitalism from which socialism is going to emerge. Um, that's not me sort of saying that, but that's, if if you look for, if you want to find where Marx says that, uh, it's in the latter stages of this last chapter of Capital, amongst other places, I'm sure. But Yeah, so what you're saying is we just need to wait for capitalism to just centralize everything and then we'll just <laughs> take it over. It's funny because at one point he does just say like, whereas the transition from so-called feudalism to capitalism was the expropriation of like the mass of, of humanity's stuff by a few people. He's like the transition to socialism will be taking everything from just a few people and giving it to everybody. Right. I thought that was kind of interesting. I was like, Oh yeah, he makes mm -hmm. it sound so easy. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, that's when he's becoming like uh, a socialist polemicist, not polemicist, like a ideologue, I guess. Again, like he's now he's propagandizing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I do wonder to what extent he thought that like normal human beings would read all of Capital. I, <laughs> I don't know. Mere mortals. Mere mortals. I do know that um, one of the few like Capital uh, primers that he appreciated was written by an anarchist, and I don't know who, and I'd like to read it one day because I keep hearing it get bought up. He was like, "Oh, this guy's right," which is pretty funny. So, you know, it's an interesting factoid I wasn't aware of. Yeah. His right. mortal enemy is the anarchists. Turns out, you know, they can do some good stuff. Good for them, yeah. I say. <laughs> um, okay, well, that's the last section of Capital, Dan. Wow, right. we got through the right. entire book. Good for us. <laughs> um, this stuff is like if you're struggling with capital or you've opened it once and been like, fuck this, just go read this last section, section eight, because it is eminently readable. There are some bits that if you're just like, whatever, you can just skip. But it is a really good introduction to everything that Marx is talking about. And it's kind of unfortunate that it's the last section, but you can, I guess you can kind of see why he did that. But mm -hmm. it is the most intelligible of everything in this book. So it's very good. Yeah. Yeah. There's a reason why. Well, not that our way is the only way, but there's a reason why I feel we enjoy reading economics through the lens of history kind of thing which is what marx is trying to explain really like how economics is the it is also historical development i guess um but it's it's 
much simpler, at least for me, I enjoy putting it in that historical context and finding some of the why, um, even if we don't get the where in the context of which particular <laughs> farm, but like, you know. I'm going to find it. Before I leave this country, I'm going to find okay. it. Burn it down. Burn it down. Yeah, exactly. Oh, shit. Yeah, that's the incriminating thing that we are yeah, supposed to say. Damn it. <laughs> well, the American government will be like, thank you, sir. You may now return to duty. Yeah. <laughs> um, I had something I want to say, but I forget what it was. Um, oh, yeah. Well, yeah. What you're saying about economics is history. We definitely don't want to attempt to understand the current moment and apply all of this to now. We'll leave that for other people. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah I yeah. barely, yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know. When these things happen now, I'm also not entirely certain that it's ever really possible to fully understand things without some kind of historical hindsight. But that could just be me being lazy and not wanting to like <laughs> no, no, figure no, no, anything no, no. out. <laughs> Please legitimize our ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> For now, all we can say is incredibly funny that the short, dumb, fascist man from Florida dropped out like before the iowa caucus or like immediately after immediately afterwards yeah. incredibly funny just so funny <laughs> what are you gonna do what a fool all right. yeah all right <sighs> um if we read what we talked about reading for next episode i'm stoked to do that that's a little teaser for the listener we won't exactly mm. say what it is but we've got potentially another new year new us kind of text that we wouldn't have considered reading before. a long time ago so yeah stay tuned for that um yeah thanks dan this has right. been so much fun i i like this i think we're challenging ourselves with these first two things we've done this year so yeah i'm glad us. i'm glad it's good i'm having fun jack long i'm having continue. fun yeah <laughs> well, uh, yeah go. thanks everybody for in, enjoying another one of these and getting all the way to the end <laughs> i hope it's been fun it's been fun for us thanks for listening that's all that matters. We'll see you later. Hey, everybody. Jack here. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. The song that you heard on this episode is Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. You can go ahead and check this song out much, 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 much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Com. If you want to go ahead and get in touch with us, chat shit, tell us that we're wrong, whatever you want to do, you can go ahead and do that at auxiliarystatements at gmail.com. You can just send us a message there. Or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, on Discord, on Instagram. You're a smart person. You can find these places. we got a YouTube. We post stuff there as well. Sometimes we stream. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time. Yeah.